Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to your go-to Detroit Pistons podcast, The Pistons Pulse, co-hosted by me, Bryce Simon of Motor City Hoops and Detroit Bad Boys, a former D1 Hooper, current high school coach, teacher, husband, and father of three amazing kids. And I'm Amari Sankofa, Pistons beat writer for the Detroit Free Press and lover of noon basketball Hey, games. we got something new for Amari this week. And Amari, I-, I tweeted it out. Nobody can see it because we're not on YouTube yet, but you got some new hair, man. I like it. You're looking fresh, my man. Appreciate that. Yeah, I got some braids last uh, Tuesday. Like I had, like everybody else had pandemic hair and then I just decided not to cut it. So I had like a good two and a half, three years of growth. And then I was just like, I got to do something with it. I can't just rock the curls indefinitely. So let me go ahead and get get these braids and see how it's uh, doing. So, yeah, you know, I think anytime you can do anything just to like spice things up personally in the middle of, of a, a season, you got to do it. I was going to wait to the off season, but I'm like, it's February. We still got six weeks of season left. I need, I need something personally just to kind of change my life up, you know. Unfortunately, I am bald and not able <laughs> to spice anything up with my hair. Uh, also, we, of course, are always blessed to be joined by the man behind the scenes, the man that makes the Pistons post go, West Davenport. And we do have a very special guest today. We will introduce Mr. Adam Spinella in just a second because we are excited about having him on and talking NBA draft. But first, Omari, we have to recognize one thing. This episode will be dropping the day before our one-year anniversary of our first episode. Has it felt like a year to you? Thank you, Spins. It has, and it hasn't. I think it's just become such a... Like, we haven't missed a single week since we started, right? So it's just become such a, a, a weekly part of my routine that, you know, you know I think after a while, you got to stop counting, right? And we just celebrated our 50th a few weeks ago, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, the year is crazy. It feels simultaneously like we've been doing this not that long and also been doing it forever. So uh, here's to many more years. Um, you know, we've enjoyed doing this for the first year and we'd love to see the following we've gotten so far. So, yeah, it's crazy that we're already at the one year anniversary mark. And speaking of the following, we had another really nice review from Cray3Bro. He said, another one, another great episode, fellas. I really enjoyed it. Keep up the great work. Go Pistons. Again, guys, we appreciate it. If you want to support us, show us some love for our one years of the Pistons Pulse. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Apple, Spotify, or drop a comment wherever you listen to the podcast. And one quick promotion shop.freep.com some of my friends even out here in kansas have got their pistons pulse gear so go on there if you want a hoodie a t-shirt a mug whatever but let's introduce the star of the show mr adam spinella a high school coach himself the boxing one is where you may know him from or being co-host of the game theory podcast with sam vicini i'm not sure there's a better person to have on for our first full dive into the nba draft coach spins i hope you know that shows how much we love and appreciate and respect you bringing you on for the first one. Coach Spins, how you doing today? 
Wow. What an intro there, gentlemen. Thank you so much for uh, for having me. I'm honored to be here. Bryce, I know you and I have done some work in the past covering the draft and really love anytime we get to work together. And to be honest with you, the Pistons are one of my favorite young teams in the NBA to try to talk about or think about long term because I have been such an unabashed fan of Cade Cunningham, Jaden Ivey, and even a, a big fan of Jalen Duran coming into the draft process. So with those three kind of foundational building blocks, how to think about what they do moving forward is a really fascinating conversation. Let's start there, Adam. So where are you at with the Pistons? You gave us a little bit of an intro right there that you're a fan. Just big picture. They just moved Sadiq Bey. They brought in James Wiseman. I know Troy Weaver gets, you know, uh, clowned a little bit because of his love of sinners and how of all this. Just big picture before we get into the number one pick, number two pick, Victor Scoot and all of that. Where do you see this organization, the roster and the talent? Yeah, I think right now it's important to remember that the Pistons are still in the early process of building this thing, that the star players that they hope to have someday, guys like Cade and Jaden and maybe Jalen Duran, they're not ready to compete for a championship, let alone a playoff spot right now. So the rest of the roster is about just playing around with different pieces, experimenting with younger guys to try to see who, who works, what works from a schematic perspective. I think the one thing that's been missing for the Pistons for a while has been three-point shooting. And I know that's going to be a theme in the conversation that we have today, if you really believe that Cade Cunningham and Jaden Ivey can be your number one and number two option as creators, how do you spread the floor with them effectively? How do you get other guys that can come in and score 20 points per game without taking the ball out of their hands too much? And, and that's something that I think Troy Weaver has to start wrestling with as he moves forward into this draft class is how do you add to the pot without having one too many cooks in the kitchen? And that's exactly where they are. I mean, that fifth seed wins, they have the, I believe, the worst record in the Eastern Conference. They're, they're very much in, uh, that's where that's about fit and trying to extract two more wins out of this season and board just big picture uh, who's along for the ride and who's not, right? Uh, who are the guys who are going to turn this rebuild around and eventually get us back to the glory days of the going to work stash bad boys era uh, that they very much would like to get to uh, fans as well. Uh, along with that uh, 21 games left. And I think uh, attention for uh, not only most of the fan base, but I'm, I'm sure for a lot of people with the team as well, it's just sort of mapping out their off season. And this is a pivotal draft. Uh, they will likely have top three or four odds for um what is a, 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 essentially a, a, the two or three player draft? It kind of reminds me of 2019, but we'll start right here at the, the top. Wimby, Victor Wimbam Yama, um, Coach Spence. Is this guy as good as they say? Uh, where are you on the on the Victor hype train right now? Victor Wembanyama is the best prospect that I have ever scouted. And I have been doing this for six years now, uh, really diving in deep on this cycle. So I've seen a couple really fascinating players come and go. I've seen Luka Doncic. I've seen Zion Williamson. Guys like Cade Cunningham, who I was super high on. And Victor is just different because he has elite competitiveness traits, takes care of his body, and does all of the little things you need to succeed while also just having an, an unseen, like we've never, ever experienced the type of player that he's able to be. 7'4", maybe 7'5", in shoes as he's measuring right now, reported 8-foot wingspan. I mean, he's going to be the biggest player in the NBA the moment he gets there. To be able to have guard fluidity, skills, and movement like he's been able to, to build thus far in his career, he's only 19 years old, he's going to add more consistency and more polish to his bag he's a monster is how I describe him. He's like 
in those Space Jam movies, you know, the villain growing up that I, that I always wanted to root against. Like, there's something absurd about watching him play basketball because this year with Metropolitans in France has been all about him and exploring the space, as I call it, trying to figure out what he can and cannot do reliably on an NBA floor. And he has a long leash to create offensively. He is very, very solid protecting the rim defensively. There are just so many things to like about his game on both ends. I think he's very much worth the hype. So one word that we're going to talk about with both of these top two prospects is the word generational. And I have my own thoughts on whether or not Victor is truly a generational type prospect and whether or not Scoot Henderson should get that same tag. And we'll talk about Scoot here a little bit later. But sticking just to Victor Wimbenyama, would you feel comfortable? And nothing's a sure thing, right, Coach Finns? We all know this. Amari, we know this. Nothing in the draft is a sure thing. But do you think that that label of generational is fair with a prospect like Victor Wimbenyama? I absolutely do. And it's it's less about the production that he's shown and more about the tools. Because physically, there are no comps for a guy like Victor Wimbenyama. Like I know player comparisons are all the rage these days. And, and people, it's a good practice to try to explain what to expect from a player in terms of his style or physical comparisons. There really is nothing for a guy like Victor Wembanyama. I mean, he's kind of Kevin Durant-ish with five or six more inches and, and a lot more length. He's like Rudy Gobert with guard skills is something I see a lot. We've never seen anything like that before. So I think generational goes to to show how rare of a, a combination of skills he has, not necessarily the outcome of the talent or what it's going to translate to in terms of production, but he is incredibly rare. Let's sort of get into, and, and you mentioned you've been doing this for six years, and you know I think you talked to so just about anyone about this this draft, and they all agree that Wimby is in that absolute top tier category, right? Uh, we've never seen this guy here, maybe in like the LeBron tier or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar tier. Um, a few years ago for the Pistons, Cade Cunningham uh, was the almost universal top prospect in a draft that was pretty strong at the top. We'll get into this later, but how does Wimby compare to Cade, maybe just from a tiers category, right? Because you had a guy in Cade who was pretty complete, and I think in that draft, everybody felt good about him having a pretty high-level outcome. Uh, for you, I guess, is, is Wimby on a, a... I mean, I'm sure Wimby's on a higher tier. You said he's the best prospect you've ever scouted, but uh, sort of where's the separation or where's the distinction there for you? With Cade, I think we've already seen this early in his career, that a lot of his production is going to be dependent on who you surround him with. That as good of a player as he is, there are certain machinations of the roster that need to take place in order to get the most out of them. You need to space the floor. I think you need probably another handler who's a little bit quicker, gets more uh, fast developing paint touches while Kate is a lot more cerebral and physical and likes to spin and take his time near the elbows. So with that in mind, Kate was far and away the number one prospect on my board in 2021 when he came out in the draft. But you also knew that as soon as you drafted him, you had to tailor make a lot of different things in order to get the most out of Cade. I think the difference between him and Victor is that Victor is the guy that covers up some of the mistakes of the rest of the roster or doesn't need that same type of uh, really planning around, so to speak. He can play either the four or the five with his fluidity and his skills. You want him to be your primary rim protector as best you can and maybe change up some of the pick and roll scheme so that he's not caught out in an island switching and having a guard in space time and time again. 
But offensively, he fits into any type of system that you want. He can be a pick-and-pop guy. He can be somebody that creates and handles and transition. You can run bizarro pick-and-rolls with him as the handler or the screener. Post him up in isolation, late clock, and he has an unguardable turnaround jumper over his shoulder because his shoulder towers over anybody else that's on the floor with him. So because of the versatility that Victor has on the offensive end of the floor and his ability to both protect the basket and guard in space and smaller doses, you are less tied to one system. You can play Victor with other star players in a much more meaningful way that allows me to think that any roster that he's on is going to be really, really strong from day one. I know that versatility is the name of the game with Victor. Like you just highlighted that, but I still want to ask you what, especially when he first comes into the league, what's his best position? Like if you were going to say, here's the ideal Victor role, and let's even say with the Pistons, since that's, you know, what we do is talk, is it as the five with Isaiah Stewart next to him? Is it at the five with a shooter like Boyan Bogdanovich next to him? Is it at the four with Duran at the five? Is it, you know, some crazy lineup like I've, you know, thrown out there with Wimby, Stu, and Duran? You know, what? And I know the answer is he probably could do all of it because that's who he is. And that's what we're talking about as a generational prospect. But if you were just going to put him in the ideal lineup, Caden Ivey in the backcourt, what is his role? Like, is it as a five? We saw the clip the other day. It made me so mad of the dude, you know, postering, you know, kind of bullying him in the post and then dunking and everybody's freaking out about it. So do you need to limit some of those like post defensive things? Is he better as a drop coverage switch? Kind of what's the ideal situation still, Coach Spins? You know, I think early in his career, uh, he's going to have to be a little bit more of a four. Play with somebody who is physical. And, and the reason for that is to have injury prevention and because he's still going to have to add strength to his frame as he matures. So I think of this almost like what Cleveland is doing with Evan Mobley, where if you put him out there with another rim protector, a bigger body, one of them is involved in guarding the pick and roll action. The other one's a help side rim protector. Now you have blanketed the rim no matter what on defense. So I think that Wemby and Jalen Duran, Wemby and Wiseman, if if that you know turns into something here for Detroit, like those are good combinations to be able to have at the four and the five. But like we talked about earlier with the versatility of a guy like Victor, as soon as you tether him to playing the four with a non-shooting big man at the five, it changes the rest of the lineup and the rotation around him. So I think that if Victor ends up in Detroit, they've got to look at the Cleveland model real seriously for how are they using Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell in tandem as two different handlers with two kind of screen and roll big guys who have unique skills like Mobley does and, and I know Victor would, but how do you make that work as a half-court offense? I think that's the first place to look. The Grizzlies' former team I covered, uh, also my uh, fan of Jaron Jackson Jr., pretty similarly. He started off alongside Mark Gasol, and then they traded for Jonas Valanciunas. Then they swapped Jonas Valanciunas for Steven Adams, who you know I think is pretty much the perfect big for that role, given how good he is at passing, rebounding, and uh, just being generally unselfish while also being <laughs> extremely strong. Wimby, he is... He kind of reminds me of, of uh, Dirk, kind of the things he does on offense. But as we get into his size, uh, maybe the need to be protected early on. Uh, sort of, do you see any any flaws in his game or maybe in his build uh, as we get into just how unique he is as a prospect? Because that is one thing you hear is that a guy that tall, that skinny, and you just look at the history of guys taller than seven two, uh, the risk of him having some sort of injury down the line is is probably higher than a lot of guys. And I'm glad you brought that up because that tends to be the biggest knock on a guy like Victor Wemiyama. It's not 
strong enough of a reason for me to avoid drafting him. But I think it also means you have to manage his minutes. You have to manage his workload. You have to be very, very careful about what you ask him to do in the weight room as a result. You know, uh, Jonathan Gavoni and, and Jeremy Wu, two guys who I respect immensely within the draft community, have both gotten access to Victor a lot through this pre-draft process and did some fantastic reporting about how meticulous he and his camp are about training and injury prevention, stretching, all of these little biomechanical things that can allow him to, to hold up. And one of the takeaways from that, the pieces that both of them wrote, was that he's not really uh, heavy on weightlifting right now. That with his unique frame, they believe that trying to add more muscle, more strength is just going to throw his body out of proportion. That actually resonated a lot with me. I, th I think that that's a really smart way of trying to think about the long game here, that while he may need strength in order to impact his NBA career at his best from day one, not putting his body through that immediately is going to allow him to hold up over the long term. So the injury stuff is certainly what we hear most about with Victor. I do think there are a couple on-court areas that he's just got to sharpen up a little bit more. He's never had a full season where he's shot over 30% from three. We see the flashes. We see the highlights a lot of time that circulate. You say, man, this guy can shoot. And absolutely he can. He does it in so many different ways off the dribble, off the catch, even off of screens and movement, which is absurd for a guy of his size. But at the end of the day, he's not the most efficient shooter. I think he's got to find ways to be a little bit more consistent with the jumper. And then just as a playmaker and a creator for others, he's a half second slow as a decision maker. I think there's two parts to this, guys. One is he's got to learn how to speed up his decision-making process when he sees double teams, particularly when he's attacking off the bounce. And, and this is the second part for me. He's seven foot five. His handle is going to be really high off the ground. And when it takes him two strides to get from the three-point line to the basket, you don't leave yourself a lot of space to make those live dribble passing reads because defenses can collapse on you. They can move. They can change. And you just don't have the time to go from dribble to pass and react to it. So I think that expecting him to be this insane creator for others is an unrealistic expectation. I think he can develop into a good one more you know, extra pass maker, particularly as he pick and pops to the top of the key and draws the next man in to stunt at him. He's really good in post-up situations of turning and facing chin and check and then feel when those defenses are going to collapse. But there are still some high processing speed improvements that he can make. Okay, last one, and then we're going to move on to Scoot Henderson. And I didn't put this on the outline, so I apologize. But what I'm going to ask you to do, because I think this helped me wrap my mind around Victor a little bit, and I'm not saying they're one-to-one, -one, and I know comps are hard, but can you compare some of his skill sets to Chet Holmgren? Because I think he's the most easy prospect because of the recency to compare Victor to. So, uh, you know, we all know Victor's taller and longer and, and all of that. Are there some things that Chet does better? Are there things that Victor does better? Doesn't have to be one-to-one -one as a prospect, but just some of those skill breakdowns, the shooting, the passing, the ball handling, the defense. Can you compare some of those things between Victor and Chet? And maybe that'll help people kind of understand what we're dealing with here. They're definitely the two most comparable players that you could find, right? That, you know, there's nobody more like Chet than Victor, and there's nobody more like Victor than Chet. Um, I think the advantage goes to Chet in one key area, which is with the shooting consistency. I really bought into him at Gonzaga. I thought he was, I think he was over 40% as a catch-and-shoot guy on spot-ups. Really, really effective because his stroke is just a little bit cleaner. Uh, the thing with Vic 
you know, with his eight foot wingspan, when he releases that ball, it's really hard to figure out how you're going to get arc on that. Are you going to line drive it? His misses tend to be really long sometimes as they rattle off the rim. Like I think Chet is just a little bit more smooth and guard like with his jumper. To me, everything else is a slight advantage for Victor. I think he's got a little bit more advanced of a handle, particularly in tight spaces. He's much more explosive. And part of that is size, but I, I think he is a, a little bit more explosive of a leaper. The The switchability might be a little bit more in Chet's favor, but Victor has such length that he can recover if he's blown past in ways that I think Chet doesn't necessarily have to be able to. And uh, to be honest with you, I think Victor has a, a larger chest and, and kind of wider midsection and frame, which allows him to absorb contact a little bit more. So uh, a, a good comparison point between those two, but I think just Victor is so much more advanced at his age. I love it, man. I appreciate the breakdown on this. Guys, we'll talk more about Victor as we move forward and get into the draft. But right now, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, Omari, we got to ask Coach Spins about the very polarizing Scoot Henderson, at least polarizing within the Pistons fan base. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back with segment two, and we're going to talk about Scoot Henderson, who is a guy that I think if Wimby were not in this draft, like the hype for this dude would be um, on a, a, a different level than it is now just because of his play style and everything he does, right? Coach Spins, what makes Scoot Henderson the bona fide number two prospect of this draft for you, or is he the bona fide number two, uh, just given that he's sort of been that consistent pick for a lot of draft pundits? I do love Scoot Henderson. I have him number two on my board right now, and I think that he's pretty ironclad in staying there. Uh, I, I don't think the gap between him and three is maybe as large as some other outlets make it seem, but I, I am pretty good in uh, in keeping him in that number two spot. Quick breakdown of Scoot's game, six foot two point guard, Really athletic, huge hands. I think the the three-level scoring potential that he flashes is something you always look for in a high-volume pick-and-roll guard. He's fantastic at getting to the rim, as creative as, as a finisher and a kind of last-step contact avoider as I've ever seen at such a young age. Very, very reliable pull-up game in the mid-range. Doesn't quite have the floater or the runner down yet, but his pull-up jumper when he gets into that you know, 12 to 16 foot range is incredibly solid. And we've started to see some flashes of him stretching defenses beyond the three point line and being able to knock down that jumper. That was the criticism for him coming into this draft cycle. I think it's one he hasn't answered fully, but has answered enough to give himself the benefit of the doubt where I fall in love with Scoot is with the intangibles and the tools that he brings to the table. Very, very athletic player thrives in transition, but he's so cerebral. Probably the most underrated part of his game is how he creates for others out of the pick and roll. There are very few decisions that he makes with the ball in his hands that I don't think were the right decision for his team. He knows when to take over basketball games. He knows when to be a little bit more of a creator. And because he's such a live-bodied athlete, he can do all of those things, even though he's just six foot two. So a lot of people will point at the size as being a potential negative, that the NBA is trending much towards 
you know, bigger players across the board, positional versatility and length. But he's such a, a hyper athletic player who gets into the lane at will and makes good things happen time and time again. I'm willing to bet on him offensively over anybody else in this class. Where would you have your tier? So do you still have a tier break of Victor's absolute? Because here's where I say that Scoot is polarizing. And I don't think it's like as extreme as some other guys because it's such a small, you know, one, two, three. You know, it's not like a guy that's either five or 25. But I've heard people, you know, even have him number one or at the very least in the same tier as Victor. That's not me. I'm interested where you are at. Like to me, I would have Victor in a tier by himself, then Scoot in a tier by himself, and then those next five or six guys, which we'll talk about at the end of the podcast. We will get into the Brandon Millers, the Cam Whitmores, the Thompson Twins, all of those guys. Is that where you're at? I know you said that you have number two and number three a little bit closer than some. But in general, is there still a tear break between Victor, Scoo, and then, you know, the next set of guys? Bryce, now you're talking my language with tears here. You know, that's what I love to do. Um, so I think with Victor Weminyama, you just threw out the rule book and you rewrite everything because he's so unique for prospects. So I have Vic and Scoot listed kind of year by year comparisons as tier one guys, where in any draft class, they would be in contention for the number one overall pick and deserve a, a real shot at it. But to me, Vic is almost like a tier zero type of player because we've never seen anything like him before. So while I do think Scoot is on that superstar type of level, one of the best guards that I've scouted, kind of neck and neck for me with where I had Cade Cunningham a couple years ago, to be honest with you, uh, I still think that the, the gap between him and Vic is pretty large. And that's more about Vic than it is about Scoot. Coach Spence, uh, you touched on this earlier. Uh, one thing I love about Scoot is you have the athleticism, uh, you know, which kind of puts him, or at least has some compared to guys like Russell Westbrook or Derrick Rhodes. But uh, not only is his life while passing really great, and with guards that athletic, they're not always two point guards, right? But the shooting touch for him also stands out as well. And it seems like there's a real chance he will be a plus shooter, both from mid range and from three in the NBA. You know, I don't know if he'll be super high volume, but it seems like a guy who'll be able to knock shots down, which is also not necessarily true for guys like Russell Westbrook and. John Morant. And that makes this draft, I think, unique for Pistons fans who are watching and they're like, okay, we drafted Killian Hayes 7th in 2020. We drafted Cade first overall in 2021. And then we just drafted Jaden Ivey last year. And those drafts kind of worked out that way, right? Like, I don't think they knew when they drafted Killian that they were going to fall into the number one pick a year later and then have Jaden Ivey fall into their laps. But you're looking at the prospect of drafting a fourth lead ball handler um, in as many years. And that probably forces some deeper roster building decisions for you is scoot on that tier where you look at this Pistons roster and, and you see Katie, you see Jaden Ivey, both of these guys look like at the very absolute least starting NBA point guards. Do you add scoot to that tier and figure it out? Or do you at that point look beyond and maybe look at some other roster maneuvers that would balance the roster out more? It's a great question, Amar. Uh, and it's it's one that I think the, the Pistons front office and fans are going to be wrestling with all the way up to draft night if they end up in that number two spot. To me, uh, let me preface it this way. I, I've loved Jaden Ivey as a prospect for a long period of time. I was a huge fan of his. I coached against him when he was in high school, saw the potential from him at a young age. Like was trapped. He's got some of the fastest end-to-end speed that you will ever see. And you can you can tell he's starting to figure some stuff out in the half court with how to speed up his decision-making and be a little bit cleaner with the basketball. I think Scoot is on a little bit different of a level than a guy like Jaden Ivey, to the point where, as we said at the top, the Pistons are so 
young in this roster building phase that they, you just got to find the best guys available and try to build around them. And because you have Jaden Ivey, it can tempt you sometimes to want to pass on a guy like Scoot Henderson or not rework the entire roster where you may have to take, you know, 95 cents on the dollar if you're trying to move Jaden Ivey and everyone else in the world knows it because you've just drafted Scoot Henderson. But at the end of the day, to me, it's worth it. That Scoot and Cade Cunningham would be a really good pairing together because they are both some of the most cerebral players that'll come in the NBA. And I think what we're seeing right now across the league is that those guys who think the game while also having the scoring and athletic chops are the ones that continue to succeed in playoff time, that they can adapt to different environments, to different coverages, make quick decisions, involve and create for others on a more reliable basis. I would want two of them on my team and bank on Scoot Henderson's shot coming along enough to be able to play off ball. That would be my preference, but it's it's definitely a stressful decision. We're going to come back to this question because I do want to get your thoughts even more on possibly those three guys playing together, or if you were going to move it, would you actually just take the number three? But we're going to use that to preface and lead us into that conversation about the next tier of guys. Let's talk about Scoot Henderson's weaknesses, his flaws, his areas of growth. I agree with you. The, the thing that stood out to me the very first time I watched Scoot coach spins wasn't the athleticism. I was like, this dude changes pace. He changes direction. He manipulates ball screen. And that was two years ago when he was 17 years old playing for the G League Ignite. Now, I think there are areas of growth. You touched on the shooting. I'd be curious how much you believe that the three-point shooting comes around. And I do want to, and maybe you can touch on this more. There's different stats going around about Scoot's three-point shooting, depending on whether you include, I think, the six games from the showcase or not, because I think he shot really well in the showcase. So I just want all the listeners to know as well, the stats can be skewed, whether you use the Metropolitan game, whether you use those six showcase games. But where are the big areas of growth with Scoot Henderson? Yeah, so the the stats piece is a really important one too, right? Like the G League has to figure that out just from a, a general standpoint. Like you can't have eight different versions of the same stat floating around there on the internet. It's doing your guys a disservice. But uh, I, I digress. Scoot needs to get a little bit more consistent with the shot. And to me, we just had this conversation about Cade Cunningham being able to play next to other stars. He's got to be able to knock down catch and shoot jumpers at a higher rate. Last year with the Ignite, when they had Dyson Daniels, they had Jaden Hardy, there was a little bit more of a your turn, my turn approach to their offense. And it really stalled out for everybody because Daniels wasn't the most effective shooter off ball and Scoot was a very poor catch and shoot threat. This year, that's been mitigated a little bit more just because Scoot is playing almost entirely with the ball in his hands. So it's almost like we've forgotten about one of those areas that he really needs to impact the game in. And, you know, I think of Rajon Rondo back in the day, huge hands for a point guard. It allowed him to do so much as a finisher, as a passer and a scorer, but it challenged some of his jump shooting down the line that he wasn't able to be a really consistent threat because his hands were just so large relative to his position. I think Scoot's got some work to do, particularly as a catch-and-shoot guy. He, he can be a lot more fluid as a pull-up scorer because he's in rhythm every single time. I think a couple other areas I'd like to see from him. One is that floater that I'd mentioned. He's very good on pull-ups when he's controlled in that mid-range area, but as soon as he kind of makes his decision to drive a little bit past the free throw line, he tends to commit to going to the rim. I'd like to see a more dependable teardrop or at least one-footed shot in that area. And then defensively, it comes down to defensive versatility. When you're six foot two as a point guard, there isn't a ton that you can do 
in terms of schematics to, to try to help that guy. You can't really switch on a lot of different things. Uh, I don't know if you can move him up or down the lineup in postseason series based on different matchups that the opponent might be able to throw at you. I'd like to see Scoot just add a little bit more strength, a little bit more IQ off ball so that he fits into a team concept and isn't going to get picked on in a postseason series. But that's a long-term development for me. I think right now he just needs to focus more on the offensive end. And I think the thing with Scoot as well, and you kind of look at this business team, is you also have a guy in Cade who's 6'6 with a pretty big wingspan. And I guess whatever teams end up ends up with, with Scoot, you know, even if he ends up being a guy who can really um, apply himself on defense, you probably hope that he's coming into a situation where his backward partner can pick up a lot of those, a lot of the slack on defense, right? And I think that's one thing the Pistons may have is, you know, when you have a guy like Cade who, you know, 6'6", uh, he had some defensive lapses as a rookie, but, you know, still really tried hard on that end of the floor. Uh, you can probably cover for Scoot and then even put the ball in his hands on, on offense a little bit, bit more too. You know, I think I think Cade, you know, as an off-ball shooter, has some upside that he hasn't shown yet. And, you know, I think those guys could play off of each other pretty well. Yeah, and, and look, I don't think that Scoot is a bad defender by any means. I just don't think he's very versatile, where if you put him at the point of attack and have him run over the top of ball screens all game long against a guy like John Morant or Chris Paul or these you know pick-and-roll heavy guards across the league, he's going to wear out a little bit. That's going to challenge his ability to continue to create and live in the lane on the offensive end of the floor. But he's also not big enough, strong enough, kind of uh, versatile enough. He's got a, a huge frame. Like, he is strong for his size. But at the end of the day, that's not going to deter a Kawhi Leonard from trying to take him into the low post in, in a playoff series and try to go one-on-one -on -one at him there. So there are just only so many places you can hide him. As we're viewing this conversation about top overall options and guys to come into Detroit, I think it's really important to talk about roster flexibility or inflexibility. Victor Weminyama makes your team so flexible because he can play the four or the five. He can do so many different things on the offensive end of the floor. Scoot is a little bit more inflexible. He needs the ball in his hands offensively, and he probably has got to guard the point of attack on D. Let's talk about it then. So I put out a Twitter poll, Coach Spans, and this was the result. So I want to talk about all four options. So essentially it said, if the Pistons land the number two pick, what do you do? Got over 1,000 votes. 53% said draft Scoot, keep Ivy. 11% said draft scoot, trade Ivy. 21% said trade out of number two. And 15% said draft the better fit at number two. I want to save that one for the last because then that'll lead us in to the conversation of these other players. As a coach, let's start with the 53% draft scoot, keep Ivy. How do you see that playing out? Can you play those three guys together? Do you move Ivy to the bench? I know fans will not like that idea, but we've seen guys really thrive in a role like that. And maybe that's something Jaden Ivy could do. What would you do in that scenario if draft scoot, keep Ivy? Man, yeah, it's 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 hard to justify having all three of them on the floor together from a floor spacing standpoint. You know, I always say there, there's only one basketball to go around. So you've got to be able to, to knock down jumpers and surround the guy who does have the basketball and is creating with good floor spacing and just put him in a position to succeed. I don't know if uh, Scoot, Jaden, and Cade is going to be able to work even if they put a really good shooter at the four spot because you're going to want a rim protector, somebody who can be a little bit more of a, a vertical lob threat at the five. 
I think that's what makes a guy like Cade Cunningham so impactful as he comes off the pick and roll is knowing that he's always thinking with that ball in his hip pocket about throwing that lob pass to a roller. So I wouldn't want to go five out when I have Cade Cunningham because I think that he's really good at, at hitting you know, very athletic role men who are going to the rim. Um, you know, Ivy at this point, he's going to be the third man out in that uh, rotation, so to speak, with him, Scoot, and Cade. And what I would worry about is more so the asset management game than anything else. That, you know, Jaden Ivy is too good of a player to be playing 26 minutes a night at his max and just having come off of the bench. That to me, that doesn't sound like the right way for the Pistons to construct their roster in so much as they can get so much more value by moving Ivy and getting a, a really, really good fit around the combination of Kate and Scoot. Sort of more broadly, and, and this is this was not on the, the outline either, but this draft to be has shades of 2019 where you have a guy at the top who has a unique body type and, um, you know, generational ability, but there are some durability concerns. But I don't know if Vic's durability concerns are as significant as Zion's where then you have a guard underneath and Scoot, who is far more prototypical, but you can look at him and, and pretty much say, yeah, this guy's good. This guy's going to figure it out. Do you see parallels there, especially when you look at sort of the drop off, per se, after those top two in prospects? Yeah, I think so a little bit. Uh, you know, for me, I would really like to see uh, the, the consensus kind of change on the conversation around Vic's injury stuff, because that, that frustrates me a, a little bit. I, I think that if we're going to, put him on this pedestal as such a unique, almost Zion-like divide between him and number two, then we can't have this uh, double-edged sword of expecting the other shoe to drop that he is going to get injured someday. So uh, as much of a, a fan as I am of Vic, I just I wish that the discourse around him publicly was a little bit different. But I think in terms of talent gaps the last couple of years, that's probably the most appropriate where we kind of know who's going to be in that number one and that number two spot. But there is uh, a little bit of a gap between all right, so let's finish off the Scoot conversation with this. Would you trade out of number two or would you just simply draft a better fit at number two? And let's start with the trade out. Where where would you be willing to go, Coach Spins? Like, is it, I got to have number three? Like, I'm only going from number two to number three and we'll start breaking down these prospects after the break. But would you go, would you be willing if the Magic, let's say, who look like they'll have two lottery selections with that Bulls pick, would you trade to number five and number eight? Or would you just simply go, nope, Scoot doesn't fit. We don't want to move Jay Nye because as like you said, maybe asset management wise, that doesn't make sense because it's 95 cents on the dollar. Is there, you know, a chance you just draft somebody else at number two? So maybe you answer that question first and then talk a little bit about, okay, what would that trade have to look like if you were going to trade out in number two? Yeah, so I'll be very clear on this. And this is my personal opinion here and, and just kind of philosophically how I view the draft. I don't believe in drafting for fit in the top five. I think you take the best player available. So uh, I would I would not draft somebody else in this number two spot if I end up there as the Pistons. What you entertain is, do you take Scoot and keep him? Do you take Scoot and trade Ivy? Or do you entertain calls for this number two pick? I think the Orlando one, which, correct me if I'm wrong, seems to cap out at like five and eight right now in most simulations or in terms of where the odds would be. I don't think that's enough. I think that you need to trade back to number three and get something more or five and eight and a really reliable floor space or somebody who can come in right away and, and kind of fit what the Pistons are building. So 
it's always going to depend on what the trade package is, if they're going to move down from that number two spot. But they're in a massive point of of leverage if they end up there. And everybody in the world knows that Scoot Henderson is far and away the number two prospect in this draft. They're going to be able to, to milk that for all it's worth and get a pretty high return. Is the magic return not something you'd be interested in because number five is too low to drop? Or you just think in general, you want to get more than just two picks? Because I think one of the things I've floated was whatever those two magic picks and then like Jalen Suggs or something like that. And I had magic people come back at me like, no, the magic aren't going to get rid of. I just think Scoop, to me, it lines up perfectly, whether it's the Pistons or not. The magic could really use Scoop, in my opinion. I think he'd be a good fit there. They have two lottery picks. They have some young promising players and so like that was kind of where I was starting with it so is it more about getting a higher pick than number five or just more total assets and I also want to ask because I was listening to Zach Lowe and Giovanni this morning how are you feeling about the 2024 draft because all of a sudden there's a lot of critiques and a lot of criticisms about that draft not being very good all right, so I'm not overwhelmingly high on the 24 draft, but I don't think it's as much of a disaster as that initial narrative has really come out to. I think good players will always rise to the top. Like, you know, nine months ago, I don't know if we had guys like Brandon Miller in this conversation, yet here he is almost cementing himself in as a, a potential number three pick. So things always change. Let's remain fluid and optimistic on that draft. That said, I, I do think it's about getting a, a higher pick back and kind of that fifth overall. And that speaks to where this draft is at right now and kind of what the Pistons need. That adding two really good lottery talents doesn't necessarily guarantee that the Pistons end up with that third star. And that's about kind of the, the fits that we have in Detroit. If you look at who's most likely to be on the clock at that number five pick, if Orlando's trading it, I think you would just end up with a lot of those same duplication problems that you would have if you had taken Scoot Henderson anyway, that whether it's one of the Thompson twins, maybe a slasher with the ball in their hands like Cam Whitmore, you can get some more length and positional versatility, but you're not spacing the floor effectively with guys who want to have the basketball in their hands. So to me, just trading down doesn't accomplish enough for the Pistons because there might not be those players in this class who fit better. And when you're trading down, you need to do two things. You're, you're doing it because you believe you can get as much or more value elsewhere while also increasing the fit with your roster. And if you can't check that second box, it's not worth it. So you brought up Brandon Miller. You brought up the Thompson Twins. You brought up Cam Whitmore. We're going to go to a short break. And when we come back, we're going to dive right into all of those prospects that fit into the next tier and are battling it out for the number three prospects in the 2023 draft. Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back with segment three, and then we're going to get into, I guess I'll just call it the muck uh, after that top two where, you know, realistically, there's probably, you know, three or four guys who could hear their their names called uh, in that tier. Um, let's start off with Brendan Miller, and of course, there's the evolving legal situation uh, that sort of clouded the Alabama program right now. 
Uh, we will dive into Brendan just as a prospect, you know, stuff to say how things will play out and how his draft stock will be impacted down the road. But uh, when you look at what he brings just from a scoring standpoint, why is he sort of floated toward the top of this um, crop over the last two months or so? It's a, a delicate conversation to be having with Brandon right now. And I want to preface this by really saying that, you know, it's hard to just separate and compartmentalize a lot of these, these parts of the conversation. What I have heard coming into the last couple of weeks before a lot of this story broke is that this is a guy who has a lot of intangibles that teams are looking at, are impressed by the background checks, they're impressed by how he carries himself and his work ethic in a lot of different ways. And that was echoed all the way through the, the summer as soon as he got to campus at Alabama, that this was a guy who seems to have that it factor, that confidence, that swag as a guy on the basketball court. And I think we've seen that this year. He doesn't have a lot of really bad games. He carries himself and tries to play like he wants the ball in his hands in, in clutch time moments. And he's essentially a six foot nine like scoring guard, uh, operates in, in face-up situations, is adding a lot more craft to his game as a pick-and-roll handler and creator for others. He's an elite shooter. Great field deep behind the line. Versatile guy can do it off the bounce, off the catch, or off some movement situations. But for me, it's the in-season improvement that has me so excited about a guy like Brandon Miller. The first month or so of the year, he struggled as a finisher. He's 6'9 and has long strides, but he never was really strong through contact, not an explosive athlete by any means. And he struggled out of the gates in the college game with how physical everything was to be able to get to his spots and convert near the basket. He has completely changed his approach. He has really worked on it from a skill development standpoint. He plays much more balanced now. He's very good through contact. He's just smoother and more patient with the basketball in his hands. And that type of in-season improvement for a guy who was already a really good prospect is, is scary. I think that if, if you're getting in on Brandon Miller, you're getting in on the ground floor of a guy who has true three-level scoring potential. He's almost all rim and three right now at Alabama. But if you look at his AAU and high school tape, this was a guy who loved to isolate in the mid-post areas. And I think that there's a little bit of like a, a Paul George-ish feel to his game in terms of how and where he creates and just seeing this type of smooth, fluid scoring at his size. Already touched on the question I was going to ask because you and I did a podcast. Today. We did the Miller Time podcast. We did. Um, you know, a few months ago when you had me on the Box and One and we talked about Brandon Miller, Leonard Miller, Baba Miller. And I think both of us came away saying that we probably had the most confidence in Brandon, even though we thought Baba may have, at that time may have had the highest ceiling. And obviously that hasn't gone to fruition. The NCAA kind of job. We don't need to get into that. That's a whole nother conversation. But I'm glad you touched on the mid-range because I remember that conversation, Coach Spins, is it was like, man, this guy operates in the mid-range. He's really good, but it wasn't as much about the three-point shooting. So kind of the evolution of his game has been so impressive. And you already touched on this. So I want to ask then, because the comparison that comes up a lot now, because you mentioned elite shooting, he's skinny, he struggled to score inside the lane, which I think it is impressive. Not only did it get better, it got better against better opponents as he moved into SEC play, which is very physical. But the comparison all of a sudden is Jabari Smith Jr. So I want to give you the opportunity to either dispel those or maybe say, no, I can see it, but really it's a little bit different. How do you how do you navigate kind of that comparison as longer, skinnier, elite shooters? 
I think that their games are just very, very different, Bryce. Uh, Jabari, I've always seen as being a guy that's dependent on others to get him shots. He's a really good pick-and-pop shooter. He's a guy who kills it in transition. If he's open on the perimeter, he'll he'll get into his shot. But everything for him otherwise was a slow-down, touch at the elbow, and try to shoot over the top of somebody. With Brandon, he's just much more comfortable operating with the ball in his hands. And you can see that in, in every SEC game that he plays, late clock situations or when he just feels like he has a mismatch, he grabs the basketball, he dribbles it around a few times, and then he tries to make his move. And you know, I know we're recording this here on a Sunday, uh, heading into a couple days later when it will be released. But this weekend, he played a game against Arkansas where the Razorbacks have a ton of NBA caliber defenders, great length, different bodies they can throw at him, multiple lottery picks in their own right with guys like Nick Smith and Anthony Black. And Brandon Miller was getting past them and getting to the rim with ease. Uh, I am so high on just his ability to create separation, the fluidity of his handle. It's night and day to a guy like Jabari Smith, who I think is very mechanical off the bounce. So just in terms of the way that they move, I have a really hard time with the comparison. Like I get it, guys whose best trait might be their shooting, who are about 6'9 or 6'10 and come in and just shoot the crap out of it as freshmen, end up getting into this conversation and seeing their draft stock rise throughout the year as a result. But the process for Brandon is so, so, so different. Crossover, attack into the lane and finish with his left where he got by Anthony Black was super impressive. I didn't catch the whole game, but I caught that move and it was straight isolation. And obviously Anthony Black is known as a big time defender. I just wanted to mention that like that one really caught my eye just in terms of the smoothness and the handle and all that. Sorry, Amari, I know you got a question, but I just, I had to mention that because that that play definitely caught my eye. He's just such a, a, a smooth scorer um, that, uh, the comparison I used for uh, Jabari Smith Jr. last year is like this guy could be an elite wide receiver. Um, you know, I think Brandon Miller has some of that, but he's got, I think, a little bit more on ball game as well. And that's what intrigues me. Uh, Coach Spence, is is he your number three pick in this draft right now or is there somebody else in that spot? Yeah, he he certainly is uh, based on what he's earned with his, his on-court performance. Uh, I think that Obviously, the, the time and the place right now, there's got to be an asterisk next to that of trying to, to get everything sorted out on the legal and background perspective. But just based on the on-court stuff, he has moved into being the number three guy in this class for me. Is he the absolute best fit for the Detroit Pistons? If you removed everything else, no tiers, no rankings, nothing else. If you said this current Pistons roster before free agency, anything like that, is he the, the seamless fit that a lot of, honestly, Pistons fans think so? Yeah, I, I do think so. Uh, he's the best shooter of this crop of guys that should be in play at number three. And at the very least, he's he's a good positional fit because he doesn't provide that overlap with guys like Cade and Jaden, particularly on the defensive end. Coach Spence, let's get into the, the Thompson twins. And, you know, these guys are probably going to fall in that three through eight range somewhere. It seems like these players are especially tough to sort of peg as far as how their games translate, you know, there's question marks as far as overtime elite and the level of competition. And then, uh, you know, of course, these guys are super athletic. Uh, I'm then probably being more of the on-ball uh, player between the two. I think scoring-wise, there are a lot of question marks and not red flags as far as just not the touch, but how they could apply those athletic gifts to smashing, finishing out the room, all this. Where do you fall on the twins, where do they fall individually, sort of on your tier list or draft board right now? And sort of what do you make of them overall as prospects? It's hard, Amar. This is going to be a very difficult evaluation. And, and I'm not the only one that's going through that. that. That seems to be a consensus online right now that 
trying to gauge the level of competition and what we're seeing is really challenging. Um, I also think that it's, it's important to know that just because they're twin brothers doesn't mean that they're going to have very similar games or outcomes. And a lot of times where, where I have frustration is I see mock drafts, I see other people talk about them as being kind of both in this top tier range. Or, you know, if you're going to have one of them really ranked highly, why don't you have the other? I think they have very different types of translation to the NBA game. So I'm going to start with Amen Thompson, who I think is the, the superior prospect and a guy who just has probably the best athletic tools I've scouted of a, a perimeter player. Six foot seven, insane vertical burst, like throws down some of the best dunks that you will ever see in game situations. But it's not just the vertical athleticism. His first step from a standstill is elite. And this is where I see a little bit of Jaden Ivey comparisons. And I actually wrote about both of them uh, earlier in this draft cycle as the value of just getting a paint touch. That if you have a guy who can blow past his individual defender and force defenses to collapse, that is a win for your offense in some regard. Now, what a man has to be able to do is finish around the basket consistently, develop a little bit more of a, a scoring package outside of the lane. I think that he's a really good passer. I think that he's got some finishing touch to his package, and he's so creative with his handle, one of the more advanced handles that I've seen in this year's class. But the rest of the offensive game just really isn't there. As for a sore, still a really good athlete, but not quite on that level of insane first step, elite vertical athlete. Not to mention, I just I don't think he is as polished of a finisher as a guy like Amen is right now. Just doesn't have that same touch or feel around the basket. So the question for a sore is almost where does he impact the game? Because offensively, he's Got many of the same flaws. Not a very good three-point shooter right now. He's developing a little bit more of an in-between game, but I don't know if it's strong enough to be you know, unleashed at a, a high level in an NBA court. Great glue guy. Great passer. Really good slasher and athlete who gets downhill and, and makes you know smart, timely cuts. But, man, I, I have a really hard time trying to figure out where to incorporate a sore from a team standpoint. They both can be really good defenders. I think a source ceiling is a little bit higher there, but offensively, a men projects as being the one who can play with the ball in his hands at the next level. He's still got some work to do offensively in the half court, but he lives in transition. He lives in the lane, and the combination of finishing and playmaking is going to allow him to be effective in some regard once he gets there. So the Pistons are one of the worst defenses in the league, Coach Spin. So while I think Amari and I would both agree that like shooting needs to come around, like they need to continue to add that, especially since the best shooters or a couple of the best shooters are vets who aren't going to be with the team long-term in Boyan and Burks. I'm not saying they won't be there next year, but you know, you're talking about four or five years down the road. So I want to ask about the defense because I think a lot of Pistons fans' excitement about possibly adding a men or a sore is because there's this talk about some high-level defenders. I can see the potential with both of them. I've watched the film, and we can talk a little bit about the OTE film and how hard, how incredibly hard that is to really evaluate players in that you know, construct and in, in that environment. But they have some reps on ball that are extremely impressive. They have some reps off the ball that are extremely impressive. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm just saying flashes. How good do you think these two can be as defenders? Because I know that's something that's very intriguing to Pistons fans. 
I think that Asor has incredibly high potential as a defender. Uh, Amen does too because of his athletic tools, but Asor's feel as a help defender, as a guard or a wing who is a tremendous help side rim protector, uh, really, really elite type of feel in that regard. So as I'm moving forward, I think this conversation about defense and shooting is, a, is an appropriate one for the Pistons. I think it needs to be a both and. It can't be an either or. And that's where the Thompson twins fit might not be the best here in Detroit is that, you know, if you get a man or a sore in your system, you definitely raise your athleticism. You can defend at a lot of different ways at the point of attack. You can switch, you can hound guys on the perimeter. It's a lot of great things, but you don't have the floor spacing with it. And that's going to be the challenge with any team that really gets one of the Thompson twins is you've got to be able to spread the floor effectively around them. I just I haven't seen enough from Detroit to think that it's the right environment for either of those guys to succeed, nor do I I think that adding one of them into the Pistons environment right now maximizes what you would need from a guy like Cade Cunningham. Just as prospects, how do you see them fitting this Pistons team as a whole? You know, because I think the just what they could add on defense, um, you know, athleticism, I think the seems could still use a burst of that. Like there's still clear upside. I guess from a Rose standpoint, how would you see each of them kind of fitting in on this Pistons team, especially a guy like Amen, who's probably better with the ball? And, you know, if there's one area the Pistons are covering, it's, it's young guys who handle the ball. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, we've we've talked a lot on the, on the episode thus far about the overlap at positions or at least the overlap of skill sets that the Pistons have, have really drafted for the last couple of years. I think if you put a man in that Jaden Ivy role, he's going to be much more explosive. He's going to be, which hard hard to imagine, right? more explosive than Jaden Ivey, but I think he is. He's bigger. He's going to be more physical at getting to the basket and probably a better passer, but he sacrifices a lot in terms of of off-ball spacing. You know, one thing that's somewhat reliable with Ivey is that he can be a decent catch-and-shoot guy, uh, or at least we've seen flashes of him being able to do so over the last couple of years dating back to his sophomore season at Purdue. I don't know if I have that belief in Amen yet. Uh, with a sore that's a really hard fit in Detroit, if you ask me. A really, really hard fit because he doesn't shoot the ball well, because he's not a very explosive driver to the basket in ways that would just collapse defenses, particularly if you have him and Ivy together. I think that the Pistons would struggle. Another guy is Cam Whitmore. And Coach Spins, I know you can talk about Cam Whitmore because I listened to the Game Theory podcast and I've heard you say multiple times that you've seen Cam Whitmore in person coaching against him. So kind of a weird freshman season at Villanova. You know, he had a huge summer with the FIBA under 18 USA team. He shot the ball really well. I feel like he was probably number three on a lot of draft boards coming into the season. I know it was a little slow of a start because of the injury, I believe, to his thumb on his shooting hand. What are just kind of your thoughts on Cam Whitmore as a prospect and then his fit with this Pistons team? So I'm a big Cam Whitmore fan other than when I'm coaching against him because then that's just a migraine for me that I don't want to deal with. I'm glad I don't have to anymore. Uh, six foot seven, incredibly strong athlete. Like really good at playing balanced and playing through contact without losing his balance. Explosive at the rim, hasn't met a, a layup or a dunk attempt that he doesn't like. And I think that there are both positives and negatives that come from something like that. Development of his jump shot, particularly as a catch-and-shoot guy over the last 18 months, has been incredibly impressive from him. And it's one of the reasons why he maintains 
being a threat in the top half of the lottery here. Super young for his draft class, one of the younger guys that's going to be in here, and I think NBA teams are falling in love with the upside and ability because they know he's still so raw and can be taught a lot. He missed a couple seasons in high school as well due to injury, due to different circumstances around him. So just the level of basketball that he's played, it's really impressive to know that he's already producing at this level with Villanova. I do have some complaints about just his feel on the offensive end of the floor. I think the tools athletically speak for themselves, but he tends to be a catch and hold type of guy, not necessarily a quick decision maker, someone who attacks closeouts really well or fits into a team construct. And when you play with Cade Cunningham, who is one of the best young players in the world at seeing a marginal advantage and making the right team decision to get rid of the basketball and let his teammates exploit it, you need to surround him with guys who are not ball stops. You need to surround Cade Cunningham with guys who get into the lane, who take advantage of whatever Cade has created for them and just create the right shot for their team. And that's my worry right now with Cam a little bit more in a team construct. He's still so young that you can teach these things and he can figure it out. And he's got so many tools to be able to show, but he hasn't figured that out yet. And I think it's one of the reasons why he's trending, I don't want to say downward, but he's a little bit farther away from this conversation towards number three than maybe guys like Brandon Miller or Amen Thompson. Coach Spencer, running low on time. I guess who else uh, sort of in, in, in this crop do you see sort of in that three through six or seven conversation? And uh, which guy specifically do you think would add a dynamic that, the Pistons could use uh, based on their current roster setup. Sure. I'll throw one name out there. Who's been kind of a riser late in this process. It's Jarris Walker at Houston, a uh, really, really physical build about six foot nine, like 230. He looks like a defensive end out there with the way that he moves thick frame, smart player with a high IQ can create for others out of the high post and fits into team concepts. Well, but for me, it's the defensive upside that he brings to the table. He's really a power four who can play the small ball five in a pinch. I think of him as being a perimeter skilled version of what Isaiah Stewart is love know, it. hypothetically yes, supposed love, to be right now. I love it. That's I've been using that. Like I feel like he is what we want Isaiah Stewart to become. Yes, and, and he shoots the ball consistently about 40% from three on the year, but much more untapped potential to create out of the short roll, out of mismatched post-ups, just because he's such a smart, cerebral basketball player. The epitome of a really, really good role player. I think three might be a little bit rich in this class with guys like Miller and Amen Thompson still on the board, but definitely a, a name to track moving forward because he's rising up draft boards really quickly. Give us one more surprise name, Coach Spins. Let's say the Pistons unfortunately fall to like six or seven. You know, like I think where they're at right now, there's a chance. We've talked about the Twins. We've talked about Cam. Those guys are all off the board. Who is a name that may surprise people like, really, that guy's, you know, a top 10 pick? Whether it's a good fit for the Pistons or not, just give me a name kind of in that range that maybe you're higher on than others or you could just see rising by the draft time. One guy I'm really high on is Nick Smith at Arkansas. Uh, fantastic, fantastic scorer. Just has this competitiveness to his game. Elite touch in the mid-range with his floater and can be the guy that pairs so well with another superstar. I, again, I try to avoid player comparisons sometimes, but uh, one to me that stands out as a clean one for Nick Smith is Jamal Murray with the Denver Nuggets because he's so good at being able to create his own shot while also pairing well next to any type of superstar that you want. So if the Pistons find themselves in a situation where best player available is there and they're not able to, to land any of the guys we talked about earlier, I think Smith is just a good fit in any type of environment because of the offensive balance he brings. 
I love it. He's he. I loved him coming out of high school. Obviously, another guy that's dealt with injuries. He's back playing, and I think he's going to go up on a big run here at the end of the season, conference play, NCAA tournament. Coach Spins, this was incredible. Everything we wanted and more. You gave us even more insights. Thank you for opening up Pistons 2023 NBA Draft Talk. Please let everybody know, because you know Pistons fans are going to be all into the draft. So if you're not following Coach Spins on Twitter, if you're not listening to his podcast, all the video breakdowns, I know he's got something real special coming out. He texted me about it yesterday. And so I know fans will be excited about that. Let them know everything you're doing and everywhere they can find it. Yeah, well, gentlemen, thank you so much for having me on here. As I mentioned at the top, love the Pistons and and love the upside that they're building here in the Motor City. So uh, glad to be able to dive in a little bit more on their specifics. Uh, You can follow me online on Twitter at the box and one underscore. My YouTube channel is my name, Adam Spinella. And then I've got a Substack page, which will come out with real in-depth scouting reports once these college seasons kind of wrap up here. You can find that at theboxandone.substack.com. But gentlemen, this has been a real pleasure of mine. Thank you so much for having me. Coach Spence, thank you so much. Uh, you answered all of our draft questions and more. And we really appreciate your expertise and, and, and insight here. Uh, Pistons fans, we have a lot more draft talk coming up the next couple of months. So uh, stick with us. Excited to uh, fast forward a little bit and look at this draft class that um, will could be, you know, the last top pick for this business team if, if, if things go the way this front office expects over the next year or so. Uh, so again, Coach Spence, thank you so much for joining us. Big shout out to our editor, Robin Chan, our executive producer, and our sports editor, Kirk McCrawford. Also shout out to Wes Davenport. We'll talk to you all next week. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.